Thanks again for coming, everyone. My name is Anne. I'm a member of Boston Solidarity and DSA. Um, and it's great to see folks here. So I'm just going to give like a really brief introduction um, and then hand it over to Anna. Um, so we're very excited to have Anna, Sue, and Steve here to talk about the Richmond Progressive Alliance. Um, in the last five years, um, as we know, we've seen a significant increase in socialists um, elected to office, which is very exciting. Um, and this has inspired a lot of candidates to run. Um, but these opportunities also raise a lot of questions about electoral strategy. And so the Richmond Progressive Alliance in Richmond, California has developed a model that addresses a lot of these questions. Uh, and what's particularly impressive and important about their work is that they've been able to build a membership organization that transcends individual campaigns and can connect electoral work across campaigns and elections and to community organizations and non-electoral social movements, which we know are so important. Um, and so over the years, they've been able to win the mayorship and a majority of the city council in Richmond, and they've been able to achieve significant victories, um, such as rent control and forcing um, Chevron to reduce pollution and pay, pay higher taxes. Um, so big wins there. Um, so today we're going to hear about how they've done this and the lessons that we can learn for our own work here in Boston and Massachusetts. Um, and so just to introduce our panelists, um, we have Steve Early and Sue Wilson. Um, Steve is a former labor organizer, a labor journalist, a mem member of RPA and DSA, and the author, author of Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City. And Sue has worked in organized labor for more than 20 years as an elected officer, organizer, negotiator, communications director, and regional director. Um, she, she is a longtime member of RPA and is currently communications chair for RPA. Um, and here to lead our discussion, we have um, Anna Callahan, former state representative candidate um, and Incorruptibles Mass co-founder. So we'll start with Anna posing some questions to, see, to Steve and Sue for about an hour, and then we will open it up to questions from attendees. So be thinking about um, what questions you might have. But we're just going to ask that we hold the questions until the end um, and not use chat just to minimize distractions. Um, so with that, I will turn it over to Anna. Thank you. Um, it is wonderful to be here. I uh, have been for many years madly in love with the RPA, as many people here know. Um, and uh, I would love to hear from uh, either of you. I, I'll probably just let you guys choose uh, which of you would like to reply. Um, and if you can just give us a little bit of an introduction to the RPA, what it is, uh, how did it get started? Um, and we'd love to hear some of the policy achievements that you have been able to enact. I am going to suggest that we go to Steve for this first question as he has written a book about the RPA and I haven't. So he's our guy in this one. <laughs> Proposing that we defer to Sue. <laughs> and I'd also like to note that we have, um, much to my surprise, but pleasure uh, participating in this call as an additional unexpected panelist, Brother Mike Parker, who has been a stalwart of the RPA for uh, much of its 17 years of existence and uh, was our first choice for, for uh, uh, talking about the organization and its accomplishments and its structure and methods uh, when uh, Stephen um, and I first were in email contact about this last fall. 
So um, I don't know. So why don't you talk more about it from the perspective of what RPA is doing now? Because I'm glad to talk about the book, but it's already four years old. So right. So yeah. So I'll do I'll, what I'll do is I'll give the outline, and then Steve can probably fill in maybe some of the details. Um, RPA is an organization that formed approximately 17 years ago. Someone can correct my dates on this, I'm sure. Um, in Richmond, it was an originally, I guess the original alliance, as I understand it, this is before I lived in Richmond. So I, I this is just the history that's been passed down to me. The original alliance was, there was a fairly strong environmental uh, movement in Richmond, which uh, comes out of the fact that we're what's called a frontline community. We have a Chevron refinery right on our shore. So we have a lot of issues of pollution and bad air and bad water and bad, you know, soil and health, health impacts of all that. And we've had that for generations here in Richmond. Um, we really are kind of an outlier in the Bay Area, you know, people think of Berkeley and, you know, it's you know, sort of the environmental hub. And then we're, you know, five miles from Berkeley, we're considered this like highly polluted city. And so there was always a strong environmental movement. And then at the time, there was also sort of a growing movement of um, Latino activists, a lot of them getting active, not just in environmental stuff, but also around issues about police brutality, which had a real um, strong, the real history of that here in Richmond. And so the original alliance was sort of coming together and realizing that although these two groups had different specific policy agendas they were working on, they had a lot of the same values. And if they were to throw sort of throw their interest, throw their, throw their communities together, I guess their bases of support, they might actually be able to elect some people to city council and to the mayoral office. And in that way, they, they would get more done. Um, Steve, do you want to add to that or? I uh, know. I think that's a pretty good summary. What's most impressive of the, about the group, as, as uh, Mike Parker pointed out in an article for the Socialist Call last fall after the most recent round of uh, municipal elections, was just uh, the group's become a long distance runner. 17 years is a long time to field candidates. Uh, to engage in issue-oriented campaigns, to build up a membership base, to not split in 27 different directions, a favorite activity of the U.S. left, uh, and actually used to uh, uh, welcome in uh, more diverse, younger, newer activists who weren't part of the small crew of, uh, of founding mothers and fathers of the organization, some of whom, like uh, Gail McLaughlin, former mayor, of Richmond and now still a city council member um, are still involved. So it's a, a very diverse group, uh, multiracial, working class oriented, of course, and uh, distinctive for its year round program of issue oriented organizing, as opposed to just, you know, running candidates and then see you in two or four years and good luck to them. Uh, and we'll hope for the best about, you know, how they do that. That's really not a program for implementing a progressive agenda. You need a membership-based organization that's working all the time to help the people that you got elected, uh, recruit new candidates, and uh, work with new uh, organizations and, and groups that emerge in the community that, that uh, should be part of the broader uh, progressive coalition in any city like this. Yeah. And I think like building on what Steve said, I think part of the, the fact that we don't disband between elections, that in fact, 
between elections is where we sort of shift gears a little bit and become more um, policy focused. And so I think that's really helped us over the years of really of making actual changes in Richmond. I started scratching down my list and then I'm sure <laughs> maybe I'll make Mike give me some more, but I think probably the first thing that RPA did that was a tremendous change in Richmond was starting to hold Chevron accountable. Um, there were a variety, I won't, you know, the, we can give you links if you're interested in, there's a long history and it's been well-documented of it in of, of the Richmond sort of holding the holding Chevron accountable, but a lot of it had to do with um, increasing environmental protections. A lot of it had to do with making sure they paid their appropriate amount of taxes and that they have real penalties when they do things that poison us, when they do their periodic toxic release or spill. Um, that's a huge change um, and probably equally as important as the individual things that RPA candidates were able to sort of hold Chevron accountable for. It stopped being acceptable in Richmond once RPA sort of rose up. It stopped being acceptable to be the, the, the Chevron candidate. Um, before RPA, basically every, I a majority of the city council and many of the mayors that we've had were bought and paid for by Chevron. That was a, a huge competitor to their uh, con contributor to their campaigns. And so one of the cornerstones of the RPA, I would say it's kind of like our maybe our one and only ultimate litmus test is that none of our candidates, none of our endorsed candidates can ever take corporate money. That was a tremendous change in Richmond to the point, to the fact that even today, even people who aren't RPA supporters um, will take the no corporate money pledge, even if they're running against our candidates, because we've so changed the discourse on whether it's acceptable to take money from Chevron or from the coal company or any of the other you know, polluters or developers that we have here. And just to tick off a few other things, um, there was definitely early on, there was definitely a big police reform uh, movement that came out of RPA. RPA helped pass a $15 minimum wage in Richmond a few years back when that was still you know, something, you know, we probably need to raise it now. Our probably our biggest thing most recently was in 2016, we passed, we became the first city in California to pass rent control in the last 20 years. So it had been 20 years before there was any, without any rent control expansion. And we passed rent control and eviction protection for renters in here. Um, we did a lot of sanctuary city stuff. Again, I can send links if you're interested in more specific stuff. And to kind of bring it right up to date right now, we're working a lot on um, our phrasing of it is uh, reimagining public safety, which is the whole constellation of things around the police. Yeah, amazing. Thanks for finalizing that, um, buttoning up that list there of the amazing accomplishments that you guys have had over the years, and I'm sure there are more. So, uh, Steve, you had mentioned uh, the membership uh, and the fact that it is a membership organization. So, um, Steve, or actually either of you, I would love for you to talk a little bit about membership and how membership works. Um, it's a little unusual to do that in uh, electoral politics. And so um, if you can talk a little bit about both membership as well as uh, the organization's relationship to sort of individual candidates and campaigns. Yeah, I, I'll, let me take a stab at this one. Um, and actually, Mike has agreed that he can, he's, <laughs> if I need to throw it over to Mike, who's done a lot of the, more of the campaigns than I have um, until recently. 
And so, um, yes, we are a membership organization. We do want as many people as will do this to become RPA members. In order to become an official RPA member, you go to our website and you hit the join button and you pay $60 a year is our standard membership fee. Um, but we do have a sliding scale where we don't turn anyone away for lack of funds. So if somebody can pay $6 for a year, per, for a year of membership, that's fine. We also encourage people who have the means to turn their 60 into something a little more um, when they join and, and, and some people do. But it's important to remember that like the number of people who are like, you know, full-fledged paying up-to-date RPA members is only a small fraction of sort of what our base is. Um, you can kind of go out past the, the sort of circle of RPA members to what I would call RPA supporters. So we have you know, thousands of people who currently live in Richmond, who we have on our email list that we have phone numbers for, that we know have historically supported either an RPA endorsed candidate or something like rent control or, or a campaign that we were working on. The other thing that I think it's um, <coughs> just a, a distinction that I think is important to make is that when it comes time to run, say, a city council race or a mayoral, mayoral race or a, um, you know, a, a assembly, you know, state assembly member, it is not the RPA that runs the campaigns. Each of those candidates has their own separate campaign. So, for instance, in 2020, we had Claudia Jimenez and Melvin Willis and Gail McLaughlin, and each of them ran for city council with their own campaigns. They were endorsed by the RPA, and many RPA members chose to become active in those campaigns. But it's a, there's a little bit of a, a, but there's, and we could talk about some of the reasons why we don't just say the RPA runs those campaigns. We have a little space between them, but but that's the model. And just to add to that, I mean, while people, you know, for legal and campaign finance reporting purposes, have to maintain separate entities when they're running for office. Uh, one distinctive feature of the campaigning is that people are part of a slate. They're part of a team. And we're encouraging people to vote a straight ticket, like for all the RPA members who have become that year's or that election's endorsed candidates. And, you know, again, this is a break with the norm in our country, which is that running for office is a very individual entrepreneurial activity. And one that oftentimes doesn't have much to do with uh, an organizational decision. It's one person and their friends and donors getting together and, and running uh, and then approaching a union or a tenants organization or an environmental group and asking for an endorsement, but basically as some putative helper or ally from the outside and not as a activist and member of the organization. So there's definitely a requirement that the candidates be members. Most of the candidates have been active RPA members. They've developed other experiences in city government that we can talk about that add to their resume as a candidate. Um, but the membership is, is a lot more important uh, in the whole endorsement process and, and someone's record of activism within the endorsing organization, because we all know the usual dynamic is very different. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really good point. Is that it's true that it's the it's not a superficial relationship between the RPA and the candidates that we endorse. Although they are their own people with their own campaigns and make their own decisions, they're people that 
ideally they are people that we have, those of us who are active in the RPA have worked with over the years. We know where they stand on issues. Ideally, they've had some experience on a board or a committee or something where they had a chance to vote on something. And we can see, you know, when the rubber meets the road, are they, are they voting, you know, in alignment with what we would vote? And, um, and then we do make sure that when we're endorsing people, we're looking for people who are willing to be a team. You know, again, not everyone wants to do that. They, you know, like, like she said, many people would just want to run on their own and ask us for our endorsement, but don't really feel like interacting with candidates in any of the other races. And that's not what we're looking for. Um, we've had a lot of success by having the slate um, strategy. And our slate strategy actually changed up a little bit. I don't know how like nitty gritty we can maybe in the questions, if people wanted to talk more about this, we can do it. But in Richmond, the city council races used to be at large, which just meant the top three vote getters across the whole city were the ones who were elected to city council that year. Just this last 2020 was the first year that they broke us. We've been broken into districts and the dist go being running in districts changes slightly what it means to be a slate. Um, that said, it's still there, you know, like, and you, you know, if you talk to the people um, like Claudia Jimenez, who is a first time candidate and won by a mile in her district, she's well aware of the fact that like, she's a wonderful person who's done all sorts of community work, but it was her association with RPA that kind of lifted her up, you know, way above the other folks who were, were running. And so th that's the sort of person we want to work with typically, typically, I mean, never say never, but that's, and I, actually, I'll, I, this I want to throw over to Mike, if, if he's willing. Mike, do you have anything you want to add to that? Nope, he's shaking his head no. So, nope, so, nope. Okay. You've done a great job. Okay. I can yes, ask a little more about that. It sounds like um, you started talking a little bit about how you choose candidates, that you want team players. Um, mm -hmm. Do you get candidates from your membership, from your coalition partners? How do you recruit candidates um, and develop them? And kind of what are your criteria for choosing and endorsing candidates? Yeah, I'll start with the criteria because that's the easy part. Um, one of the things that I think we've learned in recent years is that we have a really formal endorsement process. Um, we have, you know, a, a schedule, we have a calendar, we start way before the elections, we start way before anyone else does. We generally do a call to our partner organizations and churches and you know anyone we can think of that might have some people who are our leaders that we might not know about already we reach out and we encourage them to, to send folks our way to come talk um, anyone who's interested in an endorsement has to fill out a questionnaire and it's not, not an easy questionnaire it's there's really tough questions and we really want people to get very specific and how they feel and think about things and then we do interviews, they come in, we do it in person, then we have votes and we have meetings and we have a steering committee vote and then we have a membership and vote and then you're an endorsed candidate. And the reason we do this is that I do think that, uh, without going into too much detail, it, it, there's a temptation sometimes, um, especially like if a race is coming and it's almost time, you know, we need to have a candidate, we don't have somebody for this thing oh, so-and-so who we really like says this person's really cool. And then what we've, uh, we've had a couple of cases where I think the people were really cool people, but they just weren't good RPA candidates. Like they, they had a politics that was generally more centrist 
than what the RPA stands for. And then it just is a bad fit and it's colossal conflict and so forth. And so I do think at least so far, since we've had a more rigorous process for this, um, we'd rather not run a candidate for a particular office than run somebody that, you know, is gonna be kind of middle of the road when, when push comes to shove. Um, and then, the, I'm sorry, there was the part about the process oh, and how we find people, yeah. So like I said, like we, um, you know, we have the people we already know who are active in RPA, either as members or they come to events, you know, even if they for whatever reason not joined, because um, joining the RPA carries some weight, <laughs> you know, maybe back, it's just a better word in RPA. So there's people who totally support us and come to everything, but they haven't given us, you know, <laughs> the checkbox yet. Um, but those are people who are just, all, you know, those of us who work on the campaigns are kind of thinking about them and thinking about other folks. And then through our allies is a huge part of it because we know that there's all sorts of organizations in Richmond, probably in every city that are doing great work and that people are rising up and becoming leaders in those. And we are not, we do, to be an, an endorsed candidate, we'd want them to come join the RPA, like that's just kind of a thing. But we wouldn't, as long as we did a pretty rigorous process, we would consider people who hadn't done very much for the RPA before. But yeah, ideally, there's so many opportunities like RPA because we're a year-round organization. Like we have tons of people right now that we're working on police reform stuff. And then we have tons of people who are working on just transition environmental stuff. So like, I think by having those campaigns and projects running year-round, that's another place where we're seeing certain people kind of rise up as being people that we'd like to develop. And then we don't, we, 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 try, we want, we aspire to have more formal things, like we're going to have an internship and a program, and we do, we've done a couple small educational programs, but to be honest, we've not built a real pipeline process other than come aboard, work on a project, and then, you know, people will notice you if you're somebody who's interested, or you just raise your hand and say, I want to run for something, and then we look at you like that. Great, um, and Steve, anything to add to that? Well, I think there, there has been a uh, date back to when uh, Gail McLaughlin was first elected <clears throat> mayor uh, as an RPA-backed candidate in 2006 uh, during her eight years as mayor, since the mayor, uh, as well as the city council, you know, have a big role in appointing citizen volunteers to boards and commissions. There's been a big attempt to get progressives uh, on uh, all the different uh, city bodies, uh, whether it's the oversight body for parks and recreation or the library commission, the planning commission, that's very important, the housing commission. We have a rent board now since rent control was enacted five years ago. Um, I've been a chair uh, for the last five years of the Richmond Personnel Board, which is a, a body that uh, see workers with grievances and complaints can appeal to. So if you seed all these city boards and commissions with like-minded people, they're not elected officials, but they're meeting uh, sometimes once a month or more often on a whole range of critical issues. And people who aspire to be candidates can gain experience in city government by serving on these bodies. And I would say most of the eight RPA candidates have been elected since 2004 have had board or commission experience that was important to establishing the credibility of their candidacy. They had a track record already of uh, 
of uh, challenging developers or demanding environmental protection or sticking up for workers' rights or being a, a, a housing affordability activist or uh, so on down the list. And um, I know our revolution in Somerville has had some discussion about trying to encourage more people to see these bodies. I, I don't know what progress has been made, but my sense is the effort is less formal. I mean, we've had two or three community forums and recruitment sessions, half day sessions really, where people uh, already serving on boards and commissions try to recruit more people because there's always vacancies. And if your side doesn't fill those vacancies, the other side will, and some of these bodies will uh, remain dysfunctional, uh, will vote the wrong way on questions that they are asked to decide, which in the case of the Planning Commission can be pretty important and big ones with an impact on a lot of people in the city. So in other settings uh, that people are, are working in in Massachusetts, uh, this is one thing I would suggest people take a closer look at, um, get more involved. Even if you're not planning to run for office, you can play a part an important part in the larger strategy of transforming city government, making it more open and more participatory. Great. Fantastic. Um, we would love to know how you develop your platform and, and how much it changes uh, from one cycle to the next. Yes. Um, that's a good question about one cycle to the next. Um, we'll see. We just finished this. We, we made our platform. We finished the cycle and we actually do need, now they think about it, there's certain things that are outdated already because things change fast. Um, we have, so our leadership of the RPA is, so we have our membership. The membership elects, um, there's I think about 12 to 15 of us on what's called a steering committee. And the steering committee basically is the kind of the governing body um, between membership meetings. And so the way the platform was developed is, Boy, hmm. I'm trying to remember the exact process, but it was it was um, a conversation between members and the steering committee, and then the steering committee. There was a subcommittee that like kind of documented everything and said, "I think this is what our platform should be." And luckily, because we have regular meetings and are constantly working on campaigns, it's not like we're starting from scratch on most things. It's not like it's a bunch of people sitting around like, "What do we think of schools?" and "What do we think of police?" It's sort of like we have sort of this track record, which leans, you know, leads to a certain direction for your platform. Um, I think it's harder to start from scratch. Like if you're a group of people coming together and it's year one and not year 16, then you do have to sort of figure out what, what do we think of schools and what do we think of, of, of police reform and so, so on down the line. And so for us, it's not that, it really wasn't that challenging. It was basically like looking at the things we thought we needed to weigh in on um, because of course in city government, there's a hundred things that they vote on every year and 80 of them are, I mean, I'm not gonna say they're not important but it's not the sort of stuff that we'll engage with. And so we look at the, which issues, you know, are crucial, central to our, our, our reason for being. And then we kind of look at what have we historically done on this? Are we still going in that direction? Is there new stuff we need to incorporate? And then we take this document and we write it all up and we vote on it as a steering committee and then the membership committee votes on it. And it's kind of, you know, it's interesting. The same thing with by like platforms and bylaws, it's, they, they exist, like they're important. I think it really is important to have that stuff and have it on your website and have it accessible. But I would, if I'm being honest, 
they're not huge living documents necessarily. Like I do feel like when we get together and start to discuss an issue and raise an issue, it's not that often that someone will say like our platform says X, you know, it's more like, what are we leaning towards now? And maybe we need to change the platform. I mean, maybe I'm mischaracterizing it, but that's sort of been my sense of it is that it's not, it's important, but it's not like, it doesn't give you a roadmap, I guess. It's, if anything, it becomes more like the document, a running document of what you're doing. Um, if that is helpful, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And as far as your candidates, so do you find that the candidates that you endorse, um, like, do you ask them which parts of the platform they agree on? Do you find that they all are like, yes, 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 yes. Is there ever a, a question about somebody who maybe isn't totally aligned? And, and how do you hold them accountable after they're elected? Yeah. So I'm going to take my stab at this and then I'm going to let Mike and Steve tell me if they disagree, but which is interesting, like, I, cause I do think there's some, there might be different interpretations on what we do, but here's what I think we do is that going into an endorsement process, we really are looking for someone who pretty much checks every box in terms of the platform that we have. Because like I said, like the platform is just the stuff that's really central issues to us. We know that there's gonna be, like for instance, there was just an issue of votes in city council about um, a particular way of whether, what to do to, to address the fact that we have a growing number of homeless encampments. In that case, I think <laughs> it's like every single every single city council member, including the RPA ones, had different ideas and different votes. They were all of the same value, you know, like they all had the same value behind it, which is we need to care for these people and help those who wish to get into a roofed a, ho a home situation that we need to find a path for that. But they had different ideas about how to get there. And that's fine. And that's understandable. And that's going to be most votes, right? Like most votes are going to have a lot of variability and we're okay with that. But on the things that are our core issues enough to make it onto the platform, we kind of don't want to work with somebody who's like, I don't really know what I think about charter schools. You know, that's a real controversial one too. Like there's perfectly smart, good, lovely people who support charter schools for reasons that I completely understand. But the RPA's just is that we need to reinvest in public schools and not have the privatization of education. And so if somebody has a different opinion of that, they may be a lovely candidate, but they're probably not an RPA candidate. Now, the problem comes is that you endorse people that you hope will be on, stick to your platform. And then if they are elected and they have a chance to make a decision where they are clearly not aligned with what the platform or the rest of the organization thinks. Um, we, we have had cases of that in the last couple of years. So I guess I should say that although I consider RPA to be a successful organization, nothing's perfect. And <laughs> we definitely haven't like, what? you know, like cracked. Well, I know, sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> we have our own messes and this was one of them. Like we had a really important vote um, related to what's called Point Molotti. Um, it's about sh shoreline protection and it's a long story, so I won't go into it, but just suffice to say that RPA members have had a really strong and clear history of trying a particular strategy, which is not developing this place for housing. And then a couple of our endorsed candidates voted the other way. And they had, there were reasons. It was like, there was all sorts of context and contingencies, but at the end of the day, it really wasn't consistent, I think, with what most RPA people wanted. <laughs> what this launched in us, in, in us organizationally, 
um, was this incredible time consuming um, process of rewriting sections of the bylaws to deal with accountability. And we wrote and wrote and talked and talked and talked and talked and wrote and wrote. At the end of the day, there's this long section now in our bylaws about accountability. But at the end of the day, I think what it comes down to is that we look at um, we look at endorsements every cycle. And like any organization, when it comes time to endorse, we're going to look at the voting record of the person we're, we're sitting across from. And it would be very, in, the, in this case, it's both people who voted the opposite way on Point Mladi chose not to run again. Had they chose to run again, I'm fairly confident they would not have received an RPA endorsement. And so for me, that's kind of like where the accountability piece comes in. I'm, I'm not a big fan of like airing our dirty laundry and publicly denouncing that so-and-so voted wrong. I think it backfires for us. It makes us look bad. But I am a big fan of saying, hey, you know, when 2022 rolls around, you know, you're probably not going to get an endorsement because you're not, you know, consistent with our values. And and uh, and I think they they both knew that. And that was probably a reason why they they certainly didn't get asked for our endorsement and they chose not to run. Um, so is that helpful? I mean, I know it's I mean, but like Mike or Steve, you have more you want to say? It's not a small problem. I mean, statistically, yeah. you've got eight people that you've elected the city council uh, as a product of this uh, movement over the last 17 years. And three of them uh, who served for varying lengths of time uh, ended up uh, estranged from the organization politically, uh, candidates for deselection or were defeated in their reelection efforts uh, due to backlash against particular votes that they had taken, uh, usually on development issues which were unpopular with other progressives. And, um, you know, if you, the bylaws are on the RPA website. I think some of the amendments that, that were made to it uh, about accountability uh, do try to address this never ending tension between uh, people's uh, sense of responsibility to the political organization that uh, helped put them into public office. And then when they get into public office, the fact that they represent this broader constituency, whether it's a neighborhood or under the old system in Richmond, um, uh, a citywide electorate. And, uh, you know, DSA faces the same problem. I'm sure there are many DSA members who don't think AOC is particularly accountable to DSA, though she's by all accounts still a, a DSA member and, you know, champions a lot of uh, DSA issues, but uh, probably doesn't, you know, feel that she has to be as accountable to DSA nationally or New York City chapter than uh, she has to be to the, the people who vote for her in her own congressional district. So it's the same tension. It's not easily resolved. But if the bar is raised in terms of expectations uh, and you have some process for dealing with people who stray from the shining path, depending on your point of view, um, other people maybe get the message and, and stick with the team and the platform and the program and maintain the kind of unity that you need for, for people to feel that when they're casting a vote for progressive, they're going to get some results. Can I, Mike, can I add something? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the problems for anybody that gets elected is that they can't possibly do the job they're elected to do by themselves. They need help. And if you don't provide that help and that assistance, 
then they're going to come to depend on other people. And that's, that's how people drift off. And one way that people stay accountable is because they know they need the help. And we try to provide that. We try to provide people to help them do research on things, to help them prepare for meetings, to help represent them. I mean, the ongoing organization part of it is really an important part of keeping them um, uh, committed to the, the group. It's because they're constantly interacting with the group because they, they need the group. And once you have a model which just elects people and lets them go off, you can be almost certain they're gonna be under all kinds of other pressures and go in other ways. So the maintaining the organization and maintaining the organization consciously to help the candidates that are elected become successes is probably the biggest thing which keeps them also sort of loyal to the program and politics of the group. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. I, was, I, I have talked to Gail about that and she talked about the packet parties that you would have with RPA members um, coming and meeting with elected officials before the meetings to go through the whole packet. Um, and that sounds like what you're talking about, which is like the support that these candidates need to have. Yeah, I think a lot of it. So you're right. That's a, you know, we call, we now call it the, the council action team or the council assistance team. And it would change the cats that, yeah, they meet every week and they go through, you know, 800 pages of a city council agenda and they talk about it and they strategize and the candidates you know, we have different ones attached to different candidates. So could we have certain Brown Act regulations we can go into? But yes, there, that's a huge part of it. And I think at the end of the day, like Mike said, it's really those relationships that help keep people accountable and moving in the same direction. You can't litigate it. Like that's, I guess, kind of what I was trying to convey with the whole thing where we spent so much time trying to write the bylaws to stop anyone from going astray. You're never gonna do that. But, but if you're meeting every week with people and talking things through, um, and people come to see candidates, you know, elected officials come to see that they really have a team around them and the team's pretty smart. Um, they're more likely to listen to that team, as Mike said, rather than the city attorney who says, we're all going to get sued if you do that thing, you know, which, which in the absence of that context and that support, the city attorney can really <laughs> turn a person's head <laughs> towards, towards um, away from their values and towards things. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's relationships above you know, the trying to put too many rules on things. Fantastic. I, I personally, I think this is like the most amazing and kind of mind blowing part of the RPA model. I love this. Mm -hmm. um, I do want to ask a little bit about uh, sort of your coalition, the alliance part. Um, mm -hmm. So what is the relationship between the RPA and the variety of sort of labor and social movements going on um, in Richmond? And, and how do you use electoral politics and electoral campaigns to really build not just your electoral prowess, but to build up those movements as well? Sure. Um, so just on the surface level, we have the steering committee I mentioned that is the leadership body of the RPA. We have certain seats that we designate, like we hold a seat for a couple of the large unions. You know, they have one representative each. Um, we have, you know, different nonprofit organizations like ACE, which is a big player in, um, in housing and homelessness stuff in, in the Bay Area in California. They, they're in, on our steering committee too. But there's, you know, aside from the few that actually sit on the steering committee, RPA has pretty good relationships with, you know, probably two dozen, um, 
either labor or uh, nonprofit activist, not sort of activist nonprofit groups that operate in Richmond. And it's kind of informal, like aside from the ones who actually come to the steering committee, it's, um, you know, a lot of times it's, it coalesces around campaigns. Like for instance, a lot of us are working, there's a lot of organizations, including RPA, working on the police, the reimagining public safety. I keep calling it police reform and my expert people tell me, stop calling it that. <laughs> it's reimagining public safety. Um, we are, so, so basically there's issues that, that pop up constantly or issues that in this case, like that we are pushing. And then we try to invite all the relevant actors to participate in that. Also this year, like I, I feel like it's more robust this year than in years past, or maybe I just started paying attention to it, but there's a ton of organizations, including us meeting over the budget. Like that's always been sort of one of those things where like, you know, <laughs> the city budget kind of like makes or breaks everything. And it just, it happens during this very finite period of time. And, and I feel like this year, maybe more than in the past, um, there's a bunch of relevant actors who are coming together around that. Um, and do we help them as much as they help? And then all these people, by the way, they show these people in these organizations show up at election time, right? Like if we're working together, you know, all year, every year, um, they're sending people, they're making the legally appropriate financial donations. It's so it's, it's nice, you know, like they really do show up most of them for campaigns as well. Um, the electoral part. Um, I think we do help them because a lot of us, are on the same page that like the RPA is the organization. Like if you're trying to do things differently with policing, RPA is the organization. The candidates that come out of RPA are endorsed by RPA will actually do that. Um, we will actually do stuff to help undocumented immigrants. We will actually do something to help renters. And it's not, not gonna be this sort of like middle of the road, like one day we'll get there, but like we'll actually do stuff. And people are starting to also realize that in the past, past few years, we had people on city council, but we've never had a majority of the people on city council be progressive. And now we have a majority. So it's like a whole nother, I think this is, is this only the second time we've had a majority? I think Mike's nodding, yeah. And so it's a whole new universe, like of things that we can get done. And so I do feel like it's a nice sort of, these are give and take relationships of, of we have common values and we're all putting in together to try to get those done. Fantastic. I, I know we wanted to leave a little bit of time for questions. Does this seem like um, a good time for us to go ahead and uh, um, I'm going to pass it back to Anne, who is going to um, be in charge of those. Great. Thank you. Um, and thanks so much to um, all of our panelists. This was really great to hear. Um, so we'll open it up to Q&A. So what we'll do is you can just go ahead and put your question in the chat or if you would prefer to unmute and um, ask your question out loud, that's also fine. You can just write stack in the chat um, and you can address your questions to any of our panelists, all of our panelists, et cetera. Um, yes, Dave, go ahead. Thanks. Uh, I'm gonna actually quote from that article that Sue mentioned that Mike Parker wrote about the last campaign uh, a couple of short paragraphs. Um, so Mike wrote, uh, many of the leaders, organizers, and candidates of the RPA have joined East Bay DSA, but DSA as such had very little 
presence in the RPA campaigns. East Bay DSA mobilizations this fall for five local campaigns did not include Richmond. In part, this has to do with geography, but uh, the reason for the lack of DSA involvement is mainly political. A significant part of DSA, if not the majority, believe that DSA should determine support for a candidate based on whether the candidate is a socialist uh, rather than whether the campaign brings working class people into independently organized struggle. Um, I, I'm interested in hearing uh, any one of the three of you commenting on that, that issue and, and um, what you would say to uh, reluctant DSAers who say, eh, you've got Democrats, you've got all kinds of non-socialists involved, you know, some of your candidates aren't socialists, you know, why should we bother with you? Can I hand it off to Mike <laughs> as author of the piece? <laughs> well, I mean, it was a, a comment more about DSA than it was about the RPA. Uh, actually, it's sort of interesting. Richmond, as Sue said, is part of the Bay Area, but is a sort of often forgotten part of the Bay Area. Um, the uh, all all the all four candidates that the RPA is elected to Richmond City Council consider themselves socialists. At one point or another, all of them were or are members of DSA. It's not like we don't do what the other candidates do. It's not that we don't raise these issues. It's not that there are any particular issues that people, it's not that people don't talk about bigger, bigger issues. The RPA constantly puts resolutions for the city council to comment national and international um, questions. The issue is that the candidates are not running as, uh, the conception is we're not running as socialist candidates. We're running as, we're running for power for working people in this area. And that lots of the people, we expect that lots of the people who support the candidates are not gonna be socialists and we don't expect them to be socialists. And our main purpose of the campaign is not for them to be, quote, call themselves socialists. The main purpose of our campaigns is to sort of build, is to empower people, for people to find that they have power by struggling. And once they get that power, they can have power for doing more. And that's essentially the method that we followed here. And that's why the way in which we've organized is so important, that we start early, that we keep we have an identity for the RPA as opposed to an identity for the candidates, that this is all about building the power of progressive forces in society. Um, so I, I don't think that it's under, that's understood in, in DSA. I don't think that DSA looks to the situation and says, how can we get people to move as opposed to, uh, and find their own power as opposed to how can we convince them to be socialists? And that is the issue I was trying to address. I would just say historically, um, you know, the founders of the RPA uh, 17, 18 years ago were heavily involved in the uh, Green Party. I mean, they had supported Ralph Nader's 2000 run for the presidency. They'd supported Green candidates for governor of California, mayor of San Francisco, they could very easily have launched uh, 
the group in 2004 when the first candidates were fielded as a Green Party venture. But I think it would have been a lot less successful <laughs> than the broader tent, broader coalition uh, of socialists, independents, uh, left-leaning Democrats, Peace and Freedom Party members, Green Party members um, that came together to form the, the RPA. So I, I think this, uh, this impulse to try to brand your political formation you know, for the purpose of local electoral politics uh, more narrowly, I think it would have been back, it would have backfired and been less successful uh, at the founding of the group. And, you know, today to have a DSA type litmus test, uh, you know, we're only going to run candidates who put socialism, you know, first and foremost. Um, you know, you, you want to have a movement that's got non-socialists in it and that are moving towards socialist ideas, but you're going to have a lot less contact with them if you're, uh, you know, establishing these kinds of litmus tests for membership uh, uh, participation and, and leadership and, and to be candidates for office, in, in my view. And as Mike said, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of DSA people, I think, don't get as much involved in Richmond stuff because they live in Oakland. They don't live here. But when we had a, uh, uh, an effort to elect a, an RPA leader and former city council member, Javanka Beckles, to the state assembly two years ago, uh, you know, Oakland and Berkeley were part of that district and DSA people got very involved in her campaign. Javanka made it clear that she was a socialist, but, you know, her track record uh, was as a leader in Richmond, leader of the RPA, uh, and only later is somebody who was proud to be a DSA member and, and talk about what that meant. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'll go to the next question in the chat and I'll just uh, read it into the record as it were. Um, so from Brady, um, Brady says, the city of Boston is known for having distinct neighborhoods and communities that define its character. We know that RPA has had, has had success as a multiracial intercommunity coalition. What would you say from your experience with RPA are some of the most significant organizing elements to build political power for people here collectively? I will take this. Um, I think probably what has been successful for us is identifying issues that cut across several communities. Like, I mean, if you're not familiar with the, the sort of the rough demographics of Richmond are one third black, one third Latino, one third sort of white Asian, everybody else. Um, our economics are, uh, you know, we are probably one of the poorest communities in the Bay Area. Um, you know, with, we always have higher levels of unemployment across the board and lower levels of educational attainment and all of that. Um, that said, we still have like wealthy parts. You know, it's, it's a typical sort of California community where you've got millionaires up on a hill and, and people, homeless people, you know, on the streets below. Um, but what we've done, I think, that has made us successful is we identify certain issues. Like the one issue that actually cuts across everybody, whether you're a homeless person to a millionaire, is the environmental stuff, which has, it's so raw here in Richmond, um, you know, that every couple of years Chevron releases a bunch of toxins into the water, into the air. 
and people are, we're outraged and, 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 and activated by that, like really ready to move um, in sort of a unified direction to try to push back on that. Um, other issues, actually, interestingly, like one issue that RPA took on in 2015, 2016, the rent control and eviction protection had sort of an interesting moment in that there was this sort of original group of RPA people who came aboard with the, with the environmental actions that didn't support our position on rent control and eviction protection. Um, you know, they were more sort of pro-business, pro-landlord than, than what the organization has come. But over the years, I think we have had a lot of issues that speak to different, to speak equally to the different communities that make up Richmond. And that's one of the things that allows us to move forward is like, it's not like we have a conscious program. I mean, we, we, we do certain stuff around sort of trainings and, and sort of development, organizational development things. But really what it is, is like, if you identify an issue that different communities are passionate about achieving, then they find a way to work together, you know, at least for that moment to get that work done. And I think that's kind of what we bank on. Thank you, Sue. Um, so we'll go to Spencer's question, which was um, earlier in the presentation, it was mentioned that the RPA um, has done some internal development programs to train organizers. Can the panelists describe what these internal development programs are like, who participates in them, and how they can be expanded in the future? So three questions. <laughs> um, I'm going to put my email up at the end, and you should just hit me up with an email, and I'm happy to give more details on stuff like that. Um, in a nutshell, RPA has always been a really poor organization, but in the last couple of years, because of generosity of donors and also we've been more successful at doing a little institutional fundraising, we do have some money for trainings and things. And to be honest, we are figuring it out as we go along. So I would be happy to share what we've figured out. I don't think, I don't have a, like, I don't have sort of a golden, you know, piece of knowledge on that yet, but uh, I don't know if Mike or Steve do. Could I respond to the questions that are in the chat? Yeah, I think those are very important questions um, for people to understand. Uh, I'd say, Sue, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd say overwhelmingly most of the members of the RPA are still registered Democrats. They're not socialists. They're not, um, they haven't registered for other things. And they think correct. nationally the Democratic Party is the party, is their, is, still is of their party. But locally, um, we, um, don't have a good relationship with the local Democratic Party. The local Democratic Party traditionally opposes our candidates, even when they're incumbents, even when they're progressive, and endorses some of the most rotten people there are. And in effect, the RPA has become a sort of quasi-political party in, in Richmond. It's a nonpartisan race, so there's no official political parties. But that means that the RPA itself becomes an People know where the candidates stand because they're in RPA, and they know where candidates who aren't in the RPA stand because they're not in the RPA. And I would I would hazard a guess that an RPA endorsement of a local candidate in the city election means a lot more than a Democratic Party um, mm -hmm. endorsement. A because we win, but also because uh, people don't see them doing very much. I don't, and I don't, most of us in the RPA don't make an issue about the Democratic Party nationally, but we do um, make it clear that 
we're not following the, the pattern of the local Democratic Party. We're not, um, it, it's, it means nothing to us in terms of how we think the city should run. And some of us, like me, are very outspoken about the Democratic Party. Some RPA members are very active in local Democratic Party things. They run for the ADEM positions, which are sort of local positions in the state Democratic Party. Um, other people like me and others just pay no attention to it. Thank you, Mike. Um, does anyone else want to um, speak a little bit any more to the question of what's the relationship of the RPA with the local Democratic Party and extension and collaboration? No, I think you said it. That's that's my experience of it too. All right, great. Um, we'll go to Matt's question. Um, so, how do you deal with critiques from your opponents that RPA is trying to is trying to or has uh, taken over the city council or are too extreme? And he says, "I understand you're not branding a socialist, but but you are branding as RPA when you canvass, um, correct?" Uh, yeah, partially yes. Like when we would canvass, it, we would say you know, hey, I'm here from the Claudia Jimenez campaign. Claudia is running for city council. She's been endorsed by RPA. And, and, and we throw a few of those in there, but RPA is probably the one that has the most like recognition, name recognition in Richmond. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so the, the sort of people who don't like the RPA, who don't share our politics and don't like it when we beat their candidates, do spend a lot of time on social media talking the the rap on RPA is that we're a cult um that that's the only reason that we could be as successful as we are is that we're doing some kind of like brain control and manipulation of people and you know and and it's interesting uh, like this is one of those things that I don't know if I should say it's a public meeting but people actually give us way more power they attribute to us way more power than we probably actually have um and can be quite nasty about it, I guess, is, is the word I would say. And sort of the way that we handle it is, you know, and I don't know if this is the best way, but like what we typically do is we try to make sure that we have RPA supporters who engage, if there's an actual like debate on an issue, like whether it's rent control or, you know, or $15 minimum wage or something, we try to like sort of have an awareness of where debates are popping up over various platforms and try to have somebody in there who can explain, you know, what, what our thinking is on different issues. But a lot of the stuff you just sort of have to like let roll off your back. Like I think organizationally, if, if we were <laughs> to try to like say, we are not a cult and here's the seven reasons why it like, it ends up maybe giving more legitimacy to those sorts of claims than otherwise than they deserve. Um, and actually the, the main thing that I like to do, at least in my head, is when people bring this up, is just go back and look at the voting statistics. Like every single RPA candidate in the last election, not only won, but they won, how do you say this, the majority. Like basically, if you add up everybody, all the other candidates, you add up how many votes they got, they still didn't beat the RPA person, even if they were one person themselves. And so we got a clear majority in every single district. And then, then what comes out is actually all the arguments of how stupid people in Richmond are. <laughs> you know, like that's sort of the last line of argument is like, you know, so it's, so it's you know, there's, there's always gonna be nastiness. I think for the most part, just to sort of keep eyes on the prize and not wade into it works pretty well for us. Although that said, 
if things of actual like substance are being discussed along with the nastiness, it is good to get in those conversations and try to correct the record and provide facts. So, I don't know if that's helpful. Thank you very much, Sue. Um, and I apologize, Ari, I, uh, I skipped your question. Okay, so Ari says, what is the relationship between the RPA as an organization and the candidates they endorse during the campaign? Um, and how are those responsibilities distributed during the campaign? You want to do that, Mike, or should I do it? He's shaking his head, I'm doing it. Okay, so like, um, as I mentioned, each of the candidates runs their own campaign. And actually, just to make things even more confusing for you, what we, we call them being as a working together as a slate, we actually call that Team Richmond. So we have RPA as this organization that exists 365 days of the year. And then at election time, we fire up the Team Richmond brand and we say, Team Richmond are these three city council candidates and this one candidate for mayor. And then in addition, obviously, there's people who are running for like school board that we've endorsed or sometimes assembly and so forth. And uh, the relationship is like kind of at that, in, in a weird way, what I would say is a lot of the energy, like for about six months during the campaign, the energy of the RPA gets a little smaller as the energy of the campaigns gets a little bigger and people who would normally be doing a lot of RPA stuff become the very active volunteers on the campaigns. But for instance, no money moves back and forth. I think that's a big misconception people have. People are like, RPA has this huge war chest. First of all, no, we don't. And that they're passing it legally or illegally to these candidates. No, we don't. We actually give no, RPA gives no material support to any candidates. Like if I, Sue Wilson, want to write a check to a candidate, I can. And I do. But RPA doesn't, you know, so I as an RPA member do that, but RPA doesn't fund those things. And then I think the thing that's kind of relevant to talk about what we've sort of hit on that works really well. Like, I don't know if you all are organized tightly enough to do this, but like for instance, two of the three city council candidates last year, they actually shared the same paid staff people. Like they would, they pulled their money. And then the sort of the leadership team for those cam campaigns was a group of us. It was like multiple candidates, Mike, me, the people that we were paying, and we would come together because there's certain things, there's sort of, it's efficiency, basically. There's bulk savings on a lot of things you do in a campaign. So if you have three or four or five campaigns that are sharing a database, sharing voter files, sharing a call, you know, a, um, the systems they use for email, sharing the systems they use for phone banking, sharing the same printer, the same graphic artist. Like they all have their own messages and their own style and stuff. But you, there's tremendous efficiencies and we make each other sharper. Like, you know, like we have one candidate who's like, I will destroy anyone. And then we have another candidate like, let's step back and think about if we can do this in a way without destroying everyone. And they both made each other better. Like it really did kind of, you know, hearing each other talk and then those of us listening. So anyways, there's, I don't know if that answers the question, but like that's the best I can do in one minute of how we structure stuff. Thank you for that. <clears throat> and thank you for putting your, um, your email in the chat as well. Um, oh yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so there may be follow-up, but um, we'll go to Ashley's question. So she says, um, I'm hoping you can speak more on how RPA maintains a volunteer really maintains volunteer relationships over the years and how do new folk new folks join in as younger, newer members come in. Yeah. Should I just keep talking or Steve like, want it, Steve, you want to take this or no. I'm just okay, I'm just gonna keep answering till one of you stops me. Um I, I'm at this moment, I'm probably the one doing the most day-to-day -day stuff with RPA uh, of Steve, Mike, and I. Um, so, so these kind of nuts and bolts questions might mostly be me. Um, volunteer management is, in a way, we don't think of each other as volunteers. Like we think of each other because because there's no staff. I guess we should say that. Like we don't have an executive director. We don't have an office manager. We have the little bit of money that we've gotten from foundations or from individuals. We will pay people to run certain projects like, hey, will you please put together some stuff on, you know, to, you know, will you please run a couple trainings on boards and commissions and we pay a person to do that. But we don't have like most, we're not like a typical organization that's got like the executive director and the staff. So there's not that line of staff and volunteer. Um, it's basically like we're all volunteers or we're all activists. I think we kind of think of ourselves as more. Um, and then we just constantly are asking each other to do more and more. And then occasionally one of us says, oh my God, you're bothering me. Please stop asking me for so much. And, and we work it out that way. Like, I think it's, um, it's always a balance of like trying to figure out who's got the capacity and the passion at a particular moment. Cause that changes. Like somebody might be super active for six months and then fade away, but then they'll come back. Um, but we do have a pretty consistent structure like we have what we call these activist teams so we have one about environmental environmental issues one about schools one about housing one to help the city council members and that kind of provides the structure even as some people rise and fall in terms of their activity there's always some somebody who's operating in each of those things and um, one of the great benefits of having won the, the elections in 2020 is we got a lot more people who are either new to Richmond and want to get involved or have been in Richmond for a while, but want to get involved because I mean, people gravitate towards things, projects that are successful. And so that those action teams have been crucial in that because the worst thing that can happen is if you have a, someone who's like, I want to volunteer, I want to get active. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with you. You know, that's deadly. So usually what we can do is say, what do you care about? Okay, this is the group for you. And then they go into that group and most of those groups are usually running a pretty active campaign about something at all times. So yeah, we don't have a magic bullet for it. It's another thing that we struggle with is making sure people get used as much as they want to be used, but not overused so that they burn out. It's a tricky balance. Um, thank you again, Sue. So um, we'll go to MJ's question. So MJ said, I'd like to hear more about the support you provide to your members who have been elected. Um, is it just preparation on what resolutions will be introduced? And do you also urge them to strengthen their relationships with their colleagues on the council? And then um, almost a separate question, I would read it as, as um, do RPA members lobby electeds who are not endorsed but are needed for votes? Um, yeah, so this, to go to the second part, sure, we'll lobby anybody. Um, we actually this year don't need anybody for the votes, right? Like we have a majority, so we don't have to lobby people. But in the past, certainly, yeah, exactly. But we still do it. And in the past, we definitely did it. And there were we won quite a few things because, you know, the folks on who, you know, 
they come around on certain issues. And so it's always worth doing. There's no way we should only talk to our own candidates. The relationships, how do we, we have to always be a little bit careful. I don't know if you have this in Massachusetts, in California, we have what's called the Brown Act, which means it prohibits elected officials from meeting on topics and talking to each other and working things out separate from the official city council meeting. So basically we can't, we couldn't have all four of the endorsed candidates sit down and have a conversation about what's going on with police. That would be against the law. So we have a lot of structures in place where like we talk to two of them and not the other two, or like we we really have to be very cognizant of that. Um, but the main sort of support that we we provide is, I guess, what, what Anna said, like it, was, it used to be called packet parties, and now it's called uh, council action team. And that is the weekly meeting for each candidate who wants it, or, you know, elected, they're now elected, they're not candidates anymore, where a group of people will tirelessly go over and help them respond to everything that's gone on. And I think the thing we've been really cognizant of this year is, now that we have a majority, it's not enough just to respond with to what other people are putting out there, but we need to set the agenda and make sure that we're putting out new things. And that's where either the action teams are generating things. Also, we go to outside organizations, like all the police stuff is coming from an organization called Reimagine Richmond. It didn't originate with us, but it got to us and we think it's smart so on. As far as having relationships between the city council members, um, most of them knew each other through RPA stuff over the years. Like that's actually another benefit of having this being an enduring organization is although they can't sit in a room and talk about police stuff anymore, they have in the past, you know, when they weren't all city council members. And so I think they all, yeah, they all know each other pretty well. And in the future, you know, if we get a totally fresh person, we'd have to figure that out. But for now, everybody knows everybody. That definitely does sound uh, sound like a benefit of this enduring program yeah um so we'll we'll go to um eve's question so you said uh part of this is i think for us to reflect on too but is there a reason why we're not already doing rpa style politics in every city is there something about richmond um or perhaps uh somerville a lot where a lot of folks are here um that makes this model work really well there but might cause it to struggle somewhere else is it having a clear enemy in chevron or do you believe this is a good model for anywhere that we just haven't yet deployed across the country? Well, I think there are groups like our Revolution Somerville that are pursuing somewhat the same model with different branding uh, and a national connection to the, our revolution uh, organization based in DC with local affiliates around the country. Um, and with some of the same elements, people paying dues, being members of an organization um, that operates you around, that is part of coalitions with other groups in the community, sometimes take the lead uh, on those issues, other times um, works with the other groups that are taking the lead and um, tries to uh, maintain some kind of accountability between the electeds and their membership base through this ongoing local organizational structure. So I think um, there are variations of the model in other places, and uh, some people doing it as part of the local progress network, some people doing it under the name of OR. Um, uh, there's been attempts by the RPA to host networking sessions with like-minded progressives in city government in other parts of the Bay Area. Um, 
one such session a couple of years ago had about 75 people from 10 or 11 different communities, different stages of development, and some people already having people on the city council or the school board, others just trying to figure out how to get there. And I think these things uh, work best, uh, or the model gets spread most effectively organically and locally and regionally. And there definitely has been some, some regional networking and people learning from each other's experiences and setbacks and failures and, and victories in, you know, in Berkeley and Oakland and uh, other parts of Northern California. Thank you, Steve. So, uh, Mike or Sue, do you want to add on to that? No, I'm good. Thank you. Um, all right. Thank you, Steve. Um, so we'll go to Matt's question. So Matt said, um, uh, how does RPA avoid the tendency, that tendency toward decentralization of efforts that seems so pervasive on the left? Um, and how do you keep people focused on the main campaigns? I don't know that we do that. Like, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely been points like, you know, campaign season will come and then I'll try to recruit people to phone bank or canvas or something. And they'll say, I can't, I'm working on na national campaigns usually. Like I'm going to Reno to go canvas and something, something campaign. And we don't, I guess we don't really even try. <laughs> like my thing is sort of like, well, that's awesome. You know, like if you're doing something, I'm really happy. And it's, if it's not through RPA, fine with me, you know, like, I don't, I don't know that we've had a real tension with that. I don't know if Steve or Mike have some, a different experience, but, but um, people tend to come back because I don't know it's fun. Like we have a nice group of people with a lot of relationships that have been formed. Um, you know, we used to have an office, we will have an office in the future. Like we have kind of, I think we're a real base for a lot of people in Richmond. And so I, I think it makes it more likely that when they feel political or feel like doing something, we're kind of one-stop shopping for that. So we, we get enough of them. Yeah, on the office issue, I mean, the pandemic obviously made paying rent last year kind of a waste of money. Um, and, but I, I, I've been impressed by over the years, as difficult as it has been to pay the rent and keep the place staffed, the importance of having a year round storefront presence uh, on the main street in town more recently, in more recent years, right across from City Hall Plaza, it's kind of sending the message that you're not just a, you know, an election year outfit. You're not just about running candidates and disappearing. Uh, you're always there. Community groups are using uh, the space. Um, uh, one of the union partners has, has uh, often been a co-tenant. Uh, it's a place to have membership meetings, committee meetings, you know, it's, it's a big overhead expense for an organization without deep pockets, but um, it, I think it has made a difference over the years uh, that the RPA, more than 10, I, I think, uh, was able to have uh, a storefront that people um, became familiar with and, you know, drop in, talk to people, get material, um, and, you know, became a permanent presence in the community. Yeah, and just to add on to that, I, I agree that I think RPA became really real with the, by having an office in a way that's almost magical. But we also noticed that in the last year, we, you know, we let go of the office to save on rent. It was the right decision and switched completely to online meetings. 
we actually have higher levels of participation in the online meetings than we did on the live ones, just, you know, because it's more convenient for people. So I think that's one of the pandemic lessons we'll carry through is I'm looking forward to getting a physical space again. I think it's important, but I think we really have to invest what we need to invest in order to keep the, the online option open for people. Because like I said, we saw all sorts of faces we wouldn't have seen at live meetings. Great. And so I think we have time for maybe two more questions. Um, and Stephen is on step. Thank you, everybody. So really quickly, um, and this is this might be new for you guys since you were talking about now that you have districts. Um, but have you are you guys thinking about how RPA will look in at the district levels and whether there's anything similar? I know in Chicago there's the thing called independent political organizing committees that sort of act like ward committees, but they're separate from the parties. And just if that's something that you guys are exploring or or have already thought about that you're going to be implementing, um, mostly because it'd be a little bit more relevant to. I guess here in Boston and also in Somerville, which both have districts um, uh, in their city council elections. Um, I, so yeah, as I mentioned, we did our first district election in 2020 because um, that this is a, it's a trend that's going across California. There's been a legal change where cities that were at large, I'll spare you the details, but are now going to districts. So we now have six districts. Um, it's somewhat changed our strategy in that where it, we had to like lighten up a little bit on the slate strategy. Whereas when we, when we were running, you know, three candidates to try to get the top three positions across the city, we always had pictures of them together and multi, you know, like joint literature. If you vote, if you like one, vote for all three. And now there's no option to vote for all three. You're voting for somebody in the district, but we still, by having that association with RPA and the association that they're part of something larger, um, the individual people in the districts do benefit from that, like especially like our new candidate, Claudia, who ran from the first time, benefited from the association, not just with RPA, but also with the other two candidates who were longtime city council people. Um, I also think that on the it, it was actually easier too. like I'll say like we had our it was our biggest victories in 2020, like the, by far the largest margins we ever ran by. And be, it was because we could focus our messages better. You know, you're not, when you're running, you basically are trying to take your candidate and distinguish them from the person they're running against or the people they're running against. And when it's at large elections and you're running against 12 people, it's hard to like, do I distinguish against all 12? Like I have to say how I'm different than from five, six, seven, eight. So since it was smaller pools, it was way easier to say, this is the way we're different. Oh, and I wanted to toss this in. I was telling Steve, we're talking, we, it turns out if you are a corporate free candidate, if you are a candidate that does not take money from corporations or developers, and you are running against a person who is a corporate person who takes corporate money, that is the killer message. Like that, you don't need a platform. You don't need a whole lot of detail. You don't need a whole lot of ideas. Just keep saying, I don't take money from and insert whatever your nasty local corporations are, and the other guy does or the other lady does. We, you know, we hit that so hard this year. And Mike, you know, always said like, you say, keep saying that, keep saying that. And so we, whenever we try to get fancy with our message, we just say, hey, this other guy takes money from Chevron. This other, no, no one takes money from Chevron anymore. I correct myself. That's a kiss of death. But this money guy takes money from the coal, the company that ships coal to China and, you know, pollutes our, anyways. 
it's a, it's a huge thing. I think I'm sort of digressing, but I wanted to get that in. Just if you make a pledge that you're not taking corporate money and run on that pledge. And if your opponents aren't, it's a really huge advantage. Well, thank you very much, Sue. Um, so I think we'll, we'll close the Q and a there. Um, before we uh, formally thank our panelists, um, it would of course not be um, a good lefty event if we didn't have some kind of um, action uh, steps. So we're going to put the link to the um, DSA electoral events um, in the chat. There's lots of great candidates running for city council in Somerville, some of whom are here um, and in Boston uh, as well. So check out that link. Um, there's lots of good electoral stuff happening here. And with that, I want to thank Anna and thank our panelists um, for sharing your time with us tonight. This has been really, really great. Thank you for having us. Good luck with your campaigns this year. Thanks, everyone. It was a great conversation. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. Have a great rest of your evening.